just hanging out up in a tree, and they're kind of looking down over the world, and they're seeing everybody freak out, and they're seeing them fight with each other, and robbing, and rioting, and buying up all the toilet paper so no one else can have it. And then one apple turns to the other, and he says, man, you know, this is crazy. It seems like nobody's willing to get along with one another down there, that they're all just fighting with each other, and they just can't get along. And, you know, someday, all these people are just going to wipe each other out, and it's just going to be us apples that are left. Then we'll get to be in charge, and we're going to rule the world. And won't that be great? And the other apple says, well, well, yeah, but which ones of us? You know, the red ones or the green ones? <laughs> and yeah, I thought that was funny. I'm glad you did, too. Yeah, but I think that illustrates something about the way that we as people really really act and really think towards each other. That so often we, we tend to treat the people who look like us, the people who act like us, the people who like the same things that we like, the people that cheer for the same team that we cheer for, that we tend to treat those people better than the people who are different than us. Than the people who have a different color skin, the people that are older, the people that are different. And this tendency that we face as human beings, especially to judge each other based on the external, to judge each other based on what we can see, is what James dives into in chapter 2. And what he wrestles with, and, and he it's interesting how he connects how we interact with one another especially how we interact with those who are different than us, to our faith and to the way that we were meant to follow Jesus. And so turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to James and to chapter 2. And we're going to be wrestling with this chapter. And I'm just, again, I'm going to read all of it from start to finish. And then we'll slowly work through it together and see what, what James and, more importantly, what God has to say to us. And it begins, it says, My brothers and sisters, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing, and you say, you sit here in a good place, well, you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man, and are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? For if you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. And if you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown mercy. Shown no mercy. For mercy triumphs over judgment. For what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. 
For you believe that God is one, you do well. But even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And Scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, and that he was called a friend of God. For you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. We're going to come back to that. Don't worry. And 25, and, it's, and in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. And so James begins this chapter very strongly with this, with this command. And it's a command. It's not optional to just say that, that we are to show no partiality in the way that we hold our faith. And some of your translations may translate this prejudice, which is a little better. We use that word more often than partiality. That's kind of, I had to look up what partiality even means. And what, what James is getting at, and, and you can write this down in your point for number one, is that prejudice is anti-Christian. That prejudice is anti-Christian, that you cannot follow Jesus and act in a way that is prejudiced. You cannot follow Jesus and act in a way that shows favoritism to one kind of people over another. And it really, some of them, I think the NASB translates this as having an attitude of prejudice or an attitude of favoritism. And this word, almost every time that it's used throughout our Bibles, outside of here, it's used to say that God shows no partiality towards men. And it talks about how Jesus does, is, it, Jesus does not judge man based on what's the, on the outside. That God doesn't judge man by that. And we see in 1 Samuel 16 that, you know, man looks at appearances, but God looks at the heart. That while man is quick to judge and to look and see on the outside to see who seems best, that God ignores that. And this, this word has the idea of, kind of in the Greek, of receiving somebody according to their face. So it's quite literally, you're looking at their face, you kind of give them the up-down, see what they're wearing, check them out, and you make a judgment call just based on what you see. And so this, and so James starts here and he says, no, this is, this is not how we are to follow Jesus. That prejudice has no f- place in the life of the Christian. And so he starts with the principle in one and then he goes into a specific example and an example that, that fits in their context. You can, as you're reading it, it's like, man, this is really specific and it's probably clear that this is something that happened in the churches that James is writing to. That this is a real scenario that they face. This is really something that they did. And so, he shows and sees, so somebody comes in and a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing. And it's interesting, James doesn't even say that this person's rich. Okay, he just, he's just describing their appearance and what they look like. And the words that even, it's not just he's wearing a gold ring, it's he has gold fingers. Okay, because his, he's got so many rings. He's got lots of bling, lots of jewelry. Okay, and he has shiny clothing. It's really loud. He stands out. He's put together. He's got a Sunday best on for sure. He walks in and, man, this person, he's clearly important. Looks like they got a money. He's got a lot of money. Well, we've got some needs in our church. Hey, well, welcome. Why don't you come sit over here? And that's, that's how they receive this person. But on the other hand, somebody poor comes in. They're wearing shabby clothing. And that he's trying to paint the picture. It's not just like, well, they kind of look frumpy or they showed up in their pajamas. It's they came in and it looks like that's the only piece of clothing that they have. 
that they're dirty, they're probably smelly, they're a little gross. If they showed up at your door, you might think, man, are, are you sure they're not the lost? Like, what are they looking for? I, I don't know if they're really trying to come in here, you know. And so this church here, and the way they respond is they take that person and they put them in the worst seat. They say, oh, you come sit at, sit at my feet, because that's something that, that happened in their context. And there, and it's really, it's the worst seat that they could have. It's really, they're just an afterthought. And they're treating the, the rich person very well, and they're treating the other person and this poor person poorly, for, for lack of a better word. And we see, we, what we often do as believers, and even just as people in general, and unfortunately we can do this as believers, is that we can judge people based on what they can have to offer us instead of what we can offer them. That, that we look at it and we see that person and think, oh, you know, that person's probably going to be pretty demanding. They may want some money. They're probably going to ask me to take them out to eat. Like, oh, I just, and we start doing mental calculations. How can we get out of this? Who's somebody I see and go talk to over there instead of doing this? Right? And unfortunately, that's what we can do. And churches even do this. And I've seen this before at, where churches, they can, they can really cater to the biggest givers. They can cater to the people who look like they've got a lot of money, who look like they have everything that, that we need. And I, I saw this at, um, at one church I was at. It was, a, it was a large church, and so there's a lot of visitors, right? So we had a lot of people that we had to, to call and follow up with and just see how they were doing. And it kind of came down from, from on high that, hey, you know, we want you to be on the lookout for some people that, that you think the, the pastor himself was going to reach out to, that you think would be good people for him to, to call and check up on. And then as part of that, it, it wasn't explicit at first, but then it was more explicitly communicated. And by those kind of people, we really mean, you know, like doctors and kind of successful business people. See, uh, if somebody looks like they're really important or, you know, if they've got, if they've got some money, they got their life together. And if they're not going to be annoying, okay, they're not going to, they're not going to try and ask the pastor to pray for him for a second. You find those kind of people, you send them up the chain, okay, because the pastor wants to call them. Right? This, that's an extreme, that, well, not too extreme because Seen it, lived it, but that's what, that's the way that we can act. It's the way that churches can act, and that is not right. That is unchristian, that is ungodly, that is antithetical to following Jesus. And, you know, it's easy to, to look at that and think, man, that's crazy, but you know, it's really not that long ago in our country that we did this in our churches. And we did it, and it was mandated by law. With segregation that peeped for most of our history, if somebody came in and we looked at their face and we judged them and they didn't have the right color skin, they would be lucky if we said, oh, here, you sit over here in the bad seats. Most of the time we'd say, you need to get out right now. And pastors would stand up and they would preach and we would say, why, this is such a good thing and this is great and it's actually fine and this is loving and good. And no, what James is saying and what he is hitting us is that this kind of practice has no place and following Jesus. That you cannot follow Jesus and do this. And what's hard, what's hard for me is that it's easy to look at those examples and say, well, of course, that would never happen now, right? Surely that wouldn't happen here, and I know I wouldn't do that, but subconsciously, our sin and our sinful nature can can just work against us, and we do it often without even realizing it in the way that we can treat people who look differently than us. Yeah, another way this makes me think of this makes me think in James talking about receiving the, the rich and the poor. We're entering into you know, all the election season, the primaries, and one thing that all these candidates do is a lot of them go and visit churches, right? 
And so what happens when they come to town? Oh, here, get the best seat. Oh, sit over here. Oh, why don't you come up and speak? Because, wow, you're really, you're really important. We want to hear what you have to say. This will look really good. Put it on the website. Let's blast this out. We want everyone to know. Isn't this awesome? But, you know, we do that to celebrities. We do that to, to candidates. I mean, I know if some football coaches walked in, right? If, if Lincoln Riley walked in, if Mike Gundy walked in, you know, we'd get real, some of you would get more excited than the other, depending on which coach came in. <laughs> Right, some of you may, yeah, you sit over here in the bad seat. No one you worry about that. Right, but we just, some of us just can't help this, right? Because there, there are people that we're just drawn to more than others, and what, but James is telling us, and what God is telling us is that we have to fight against that. That really, I've heard many people describe, describe Tanglewood and as this church here is just feeling like home. And that's, that's why you love it. That's why you want to be here, because it just feels like home. And, and I love that. And so our, our goal, not just here, but every church should always be that every single person who comes in should be able to feel that way. Every single one. Even the ones that, when they come in, we're like, oh, they're going to be a little more demanding. That those should, they should feel just as home as somebody that has it all together, that has everything, that doesn't need anything from us. And what we see is James gives, he lays it out after his example of a bunch of reasons why this kind of behavior is unacceptable for Christians. And one of the first ones he does right in verse 5 is he gives a theological reason. He says, listen, my, my brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? And he's saying, you in doing this, in treating these people who are on the margins this way, you are ignoring the fact that God has specifically actually gone after those people and said that he values them and said that he cares about them. That you're saying you're either ignoring it, or you're like, ah, you know, God, I'm not sure that's that good of a choice. I know you should have made something different. I know you said you like these people. I don't really like these people. I don't know if you know this. They're kind of annoying. They're a little smelly. Maybe we, you know, maybe you need to rethink this, God. That that's what they're they're doing in their actions. And and another reason that he gives in six and in seven is he gives this example of you're dishonoring the poor man because we're just you're mistreating them you're not treating them as if they're somebody made in the image of God but more than that so you're aren't the he asks this question aren't the rich the ones who oppress you it's like, are you guys he's going pragmatic here he's like you guys are kind of dumb <laughs> okay so here you're you're treating these rich people so well you're literally you're rolling out the red carpet you're giving them all the best stuff are you guys forgetting like how poorly those exact people are treating you right now at this moment because this the church at the beginning of James when we read it it's to the 12 tribes in the dispersion they're spread out they're spread out all throughout the world now and it's slowly spreading and most people who are following Jesus at this point don't have it all together don't have lots of money they're destitute they don't they don't have things they're poor and here he's asking, you know, why are you guys doing this? These people aren't even treating you right. And actually at this time period, so Roman laws explicitly favored the rich. Explicitly. Okay, it wasn't, they, they kind of worked out that way, but it says we shouldn't, but, you know, we all kind of know how laws work anyway. But no, it was, if you were on a lower class, if you didn't have enough money, you were unable to sue somebody who was at a higher bracket than you. You couldn't even take them to court no matter what they did to you. So they could get away with whatever they wanted. Like that was just put into law. And the laws, it even described harsher penalties. So if you got, you know, it was literally you got this much money, this will happen. If you got this much money, though, eh, slap on the wrist. Not as big of a deal. Okay, and it was an explicit for him. And so 
what James is laying out here is, why are you guys doing this? And in seven, it's a it's kind of tough first to figure out exactly what James is mentioning here. He says, are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? It, it seems like he's probably talking about something that the churches would would understand what he's what he's getting at. What I, what I think kind of the best guess and what I've seen from commentators is that especially because the church was primarily made of people who were poor and people who were less well-off, that the people who were rich, the nobles, the ones who had it all, all together were really mocking them. And we saw back in Acts, it mentions how Christians were called Christians first as a mocking term, kind of as an insult. And so I think that's what James is, it seems like that's what James is referencing that they're mocking you, and in their mocking and calling you a Christian, they're act- they're committing blasphemy, and like those are the people you're trying to win over to your side. And what we what we know is, man, the world favors the rich, the world likes celebrities, we like people who are all together, but the church should be different. The church should treat people differently than the world does. That we should show more grace, we should show more mercy, and we should receive all people, no matter their backgrounds, their skin color, their age, how, how draining they are, anything about it, we should receive them in a way that honors Jesus, not like the world does. And so he kind of comes to, to the crux of his argument here in 8, and he says, if you really fulfill the royal law, and the royal law there is referencing kind of the, the kingdom of God, Okay, the kingdom that Jesus so often talked about over and over again, that he's not abolishing the law, he's fulfilling it, that that law, according to the Scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He's saying, when you commit partiality in nine, you're committing sin, you're violating this, you are refusing to love your neighbor. And that's at the core of it, what prejudice and what favoritism and partiality is. It's a failure to love our neighbors well. And we're violating that. We're denying the fact that Jesus loves, that Jesus loves our neighbors that way. And he continues to go and he doesn't let up. He just pushes harder and he goes into this discussion about the law. And if you are showing law, you're committing sin and you're convicted by the law as transgressors. And so then he mentions adultery and murder. He is not letting us off the hook because it's easy for us, right, to, to rank sins as far as seriousness. And to some extent, that is true. Like some sins are objectively worse than others, okay? However, that doesn't mean that it's all okay. What James is saying is man, even the smallest sin, you're sit before God, like you are offending a holy and righteous God, and you're guilty, and you need saving. And what's also fascinating, he puts it, and he puts this partiality right with adultery and murder, just to, to elevate it, because he wants us to take that, he wants us to take this seriously. This is not okay. We can't just brush this off and think it's all right. That we really have to fight against it, that we have to push against it, and that we need to acknowledge that we need Jesus. And in the end, in 12 and 13, he says, so speak and act like those who are going to be judged under the law of liberty. He's reminding them of their salvation, that look, we are all going to be, even though we're all transgressors of the law. Every single one of us in this room have done things that are wrong, have sinned against God. We're all in trouble. All of us need to respond to that. Need to respond to the fact that we have been given grace by Jesus, that He has saved us even though we don't deserve it, even though we couldn't earn it. 
And we need to live like that is true. And in 13, he gives this warning that judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. What he's saying is that receiving that kind of mercy from God, receiving that kind of grace from Jesus, should lead to us acting different. Because we should know that we've gotten off the hook. We should know that he has forgiven us and we need to live like it. That really true faith, it just leads to acts of mercy. That being shown mercy leads to you being merciful. Jesus tells a parable of this. He tells the parable of the man who was forgiven a lot. And then he goes out and finds, he was forgiven a great debt. And then he goes out and he beats up a man who owes him a much smaller debt. He said, like, this is somebody who doesn't understand what grace is, who doesn't understand what mercy is. And that's what James is almost pointing back to us, that we should be the kinds of people who are the most merciful, who are the most forgiving, who are the most loving, because mercy has triumphed over judgment. And what a witness to the world that would be if believers everywhere would live every day in every interaction with people as if we have been forgiven much, and so then we can forgive others when they wrong us as well. Number two, if you're, you're taking notes, is you really, we do what we believe. We do what we believe. And kind of another way to think about this is every single day, you live out what you actually believe. We can say one thing, but what we actually do reveals what we believe. And that's what James is really unpacking. And this is the kind of the heart of the whole book here in this, and from 14 to the end in chapter 2. And James begins just with saying, you know, what good is it if somebody says they have faith, but they have no works? Like that faith can't save him. And he's asking the rhetorical question, can that faith save him? With you expecting to go, no, 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 you're right, James, it cannot. And he gives another example going back to the same theme of caring for the rich and the poor that's kind of woven throughout the letter. And he says, if you see somebody who's poor and they're lacking food, and you go up to them and you say, oh, go in peace, be filled, or maybe another way you can say, oh, praying for you, brother. Oh, you know what? God's in control. He'll work it out. You know, I, I believe it's all going to be fine. And then you don't actually do anything to help them. What good is that? What good is it that you actually did? He's not saying prayer isn't good. But he's saying he's really painting a picture of where you, and sometimes this can be true of us, where we can use that. We can use those kinds of sayings. We can even use prayer just as a, a shield so I don't have to actually do anything. Well, I'll say I'm praying for him, and maybe I will, maybe I won't, but it'd be uncomfortable if I actually had to get in and help him out. Or, Man, that's a really big need. I don't know how much I can help there, so I don't want to go that far. And so he uses this example to show that, that man, that, that's no help at all to what they're actually facing, to what these, these poor are actually dealing with, and it, it reveals how helpful their faith is going to be to them. If it leads to no action, then that's really no faith at all. And this makes me think of a, uh, probably, I, I don't know, probably nobody's seen this movie, and that's okay. It's a weird one. I don't know if anyone would like it. It's called Mystery Men. It's like an old movie with Ben Stiller, and it's just about a bunch of wannabe superheroes. Okay, so they all wish they were superheroes, but they don't actually have any powers. It's like Mr. Furious just gets really mad at people, but unlike the Hulk, he's just, he stays the same, but he's just mad. And the guy hits people with shovels, and somebody throws forks. Like, it's okay. So they're pretty lame. But one of my favorite ones is Invisible Boy. Okay, but Invisible Boy has this weird thing with his powers where he can only be invisible when nobody's watching. Okay, but wait, including himself. 
Because if he looks at himself, he'll be visible again. Right? And so as he's trying out for their team and they're like, you know, they're scratching their head, like, man, this doesn't, this doesn't work. So how do you, how do you know you're invisible? He says, well, you know, man, when you're invisible, you can just feel it. (laughs) Right? Well, sometimes that, that can be what some of our faith is like. It can be what faith is like for some people of, you know, I, I really love following Jesus. Jesus means the world to me. Now, I don't actually do anything to back that up. Now, I don't really open my Bible very often. Now, I'm not really going to church. I'm not really loving my neighbors the way that I should. But, you know, just trust me, because when I'm following Jesus, you can just feel it. You know, it just, it just feels right. It's just between me and him. Don't you worry about what I'm doing. Right? That's the foolishness that James is talking about. That, that does not exist. You... You cannot just believe something and not do something about it. And he uses an extreme example here in 19 in saying that you believe that God is one, you do well. And so that there, because he's writing to a Jewish audience, they would understand right away what he's talking about. He's referring to Deuteronomy 6, um, a passage called the Shema, which just means listen. It's just saying, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And then it continues on, just giving some doctrine about God and how important this is and to write it on their doorsteps and teach their children that passage. And so, and it was kind of the core of the Jewish faith was that. Okay? That they were, they were very, they were very strong in it. And what he's saying is, okay, that key thing of orthodoxy that you guys affirm and are really proud of, yeah, the demons and Satan believe that. Okay, they believe that. And you know what? They actually believe that so strongly. When they recite it, they don't like get bored thinking about it. And they don't start going through their mental list, thinking about other things. That they shudder. That they are physically overcome with emotion when they think about that doctrinal truth. But what good is it? Because you know what they do in response to that is then they go and fight that God. Then they go and they do the exact opposite of the will of Jesus. And so what good is it if we if we just mentally assent to, yeah, I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. You know what? The demons believe that Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the world, and is willing to give salvation to any who will come to him. The demons probably know some theology stuff that I don't. They probably they might even know some answers to some things that we debate and we disagree about, because they've been around a long time. Okay, but it's worthless to them. It does not help unless your faith is matched with action. Because we actually do what we believe. If you say you believe Jesus but you don't actually act like you believe Jesus, How? The, what good is it? Which is a question that James asks. And if, I, if another example, if I stood up as a, as a preacher and I said, you know what, I love the Bible. The Bible is the most important thing. I think it's so great. And I think it's foundational for our church and preaching. And then I just never opened it. And then I just talked about, you know, kind of whatever I wanted to talk about. Or just kind of made up some stuff. But when you ask me about it, I say, oh, no, yes, yes, the Bible's so important, most important book. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't you start asking some questions? You'd be like, wait a second. What you're saying doesn't match, match up here. And that's what James is saying. That if you're saying you follow Jesus, that you have faith, then it should look like you have faith. He's not saying you should be perfect, you should be the greatest people on earth, but he should say the way that you're living should look like somebody who's following Jesus. And he gives us two examples just to drive it home more. First, he gives the example of Abraham who believed God and was counted as righteousness. And he, in 21, was not, he was just, was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the offer, altar. Okay, he didn't just say, okay, God, I know you want me to do this and I believe you that it's all going to be fine. 
I believe you, trust me, but I'm not going to actually do it. So we good? Like, no. Abraham's faith was in action, and he matched it up with words, with actions, not just words. And then it goes to Rahab, the prostitute, in 25 in the same way, and it's showing that here's somebody, here's a hero of the faith, and here's somebody that's lower. Here's somebody that we consider poor, not rich. And here's somebody who is also justified by works for when she received the messengers and she sent them out another way. So she didn't just say, yep, you know, when the spies came, because they were marching around Jericho and they were going to take over the city, she didn't just say, you know what, I think your God is the one and he's going to destroy all our people and I trust him, but, you know, I don't know, it's kind of risky for me to hold you guys, so I think I'm going to turn you in just to be safe, hedging my bets. Okay, that's not faith. That faith is matched up with action. And James, he gives this, this interesting phrase in 24 where he says, you see a person is justified by works and not faith alone. For some of you that should have set off some alarm bells and go, wait a second, what do you mean by that? So we didn't have part of the whole Reformation was this idea of solo fide, faith alone, faith alone. We, are just, we aren't justified because we do things. We aren't saved because we followed a good checklist. We're only saved because of faith in Jesus. What is James saying here? What does that mean? Okay, what what James is getting at is he, he doesn't separate faith from work works. And that's his whole point, is you cannot pull them apart from each other. That you can't say that you're following Jesus and it doesn't look like you're actually following Jesus. That if you say you have faith, it will be followed by works. Okay, and so he's he's thinking, but he's different than Paul in the way that they wrestle with this subject. Is he's looking at somebody who affirms faith in Jesus and says, "Okay, how can I tell that you're a Christian or not? If you just tell me that and you look like the rest of the world, what good is this?" I mean, so if I tell you, if I tell my wife, you know, baby, I really love you, love you and Calvin, you're most important people in the world to me, and I ignore them all week. Or just go go out on a trip by myself and just not tell her, and then just don't tell her that I love her. Because I'm like, well, I mean, I told you, told you at our wedding day. Like, isn't that good enough? And she asked me to do things, and I say, no, nah, I don't think so. That sounds terrible. I don't think I'll do that. Okay, but I tell you, oh no, I love my wife. She's the most important person in the world to me. I just really care about her. You know, I, Pastor, I don't think you actually do. All right, because love leads to action. Love leads you to acting like, if I really loved my wife, I would act like I loved my wife. I would spend time with her. I would listen to her. I would do what she asked me to do, at least most of the time. <laughs> Again, we're trying. You don't have to be perfect. But what you do, like we do what we believe. Like what Your actions reveal what you actually think. And we can trick ourselves and we can fool ourselves into saying we believe all sorts of stuff. But if we don't actually follow it up in the way that we live, then what we say we believe that's worthless faith, it's faith that cannot save. And that's what James is driving home over and over again. And I've got a, a book on my shelves I forgot about until I was unpacking all my boxes. Um, but, but I found one, and it was great that I found it because it, it fit. And it has this, this great title called Christian Atheists. And his whole point is he wrestles with the fact that so many of us in our world, so many of us, especially in American churches all across our country, say that we're Christians, say that we believe that we profess faith in Jesus, but we functionally live like everybody else. We, our lives, if you hold up our life and you hold up the life of an atheist, they look exactly the same. 
I say, that's, that's the kind of faith that doesn't save. And so if we say, if we say we believe things, if we say that, you know, I believe that God loves the poor, I believe that God cares for the downtrodden, well, how can I tell that? Well, do we actually live like we believe that? And do we believe that the Bible is important? Do we believe that we should apply the Bible to our lives? Okay, well, do you actually do that? Do you believe, you know, does our lives actually look different this week than people who don't follow Jesus? Or is the only difference that on Sunday morning we sit here and they're sitting somewhere else? Okay, what does it actually look like? Do we really believe that knowing Jesus, that that's the only way to go into heaven? Do we actually believe that? But then we don't share our faith ever? What does that reveal? And what I'm getting at is what James is saying is this doesn't mean that we have to be perfect. This doesn't mean that we're sharing our faith with every single person we ever come into contact with. This doesn't mean we never get angry when somebody cuts us off on the road. But what it does mean is that our faith is evident that it comes out. And sometimes it just comes out in glimpses. Sometimes it just comes out in a little bit, but it continues to grow and continues to grow and continues to grow and we get better and better. I was thinking of my, my father's um, d- discipling a guy who's actually coming out of the Hell's Angels. Um, so he's he's older, and he's had nothing to do with church, knows nothing about the Bible whatsoever. He's lived a very hard lifestyle. And he was celebrating with my dad a couple of weeks ago, saying, you know, saying like, wow, you know, this week I've just really started to, to like feel bad for other people when stuff happens to them, like sympathizing for them. I've just... I've never felt that before in my life. That's kind of great. This is kind of cool. This is great. And some of us go, wow, that's really, okay, that's baby steps, man. That's step one. But you know what? That's what, what Jesus does. Sometimes that's all that our faith can look like. It's just a little bit. Just looking a little bit more like Jesus. And number three in taking your notes is that Jesus came for the overlooked. That Jesus came for the overlooked. That that the kinds of people that Jesus came down for, and we see this in this passage, that he came for the poor. He came for those who were on the margins. I mean, if I was God, if I was Jesus, that wouldn't be what I would have done. Okay, if I'm coming and i got to start from scratch, just me, and I've got I've to save the world, I've got to build a movement, I've got to build the church. Okay, my fir- the first 12 people at least I'm getting, I'm going to go for some winners. Okay? <laughs> Okay, I need some studs. I definitely, I want like the best theological minds. Okay, the people who have a lot of influence in the dominant religion in the area. I probably want the best ones there. That would be good. Okay, maybe I could get some kings. That's really helpful. We could make some laws, get those impacted. Maybe some judges too. They could sneak some things in here and there. Get some nobles, get some people with money so they can build me some big buildings so we can get some more people on the payroll, get this thing going. Okay, I definitely want some healthy people. Want some charism- somebody who really charismatic. Want them to be great speakers. Everyone's drawn to them. Ryan, we go after some influencers, people everybody likes. That they're who's everyone listening to? Who's the most important? Let me go get those people. Okay, we're gonna make this happen quick. That's not what Jesus does. Okay, he goes and he gets disciples that are rejects from the seminaries. He goes and he gets fishermen. He gets tax collectors. He gets people that nobody else likes, that no one else wants to be around. He goes and he spends so much time with the sick and with the unclean. 
Am I unclean? That was people that they were just, not only was it ceremonial unclean, that if they spent any time with them, it would impact their own worship life because then they couldn't go to the temple. But he's talking, he would go spend time with lepers and with people who had diseases that were incredibly contagious and deadly and people were afraid of. And he said, no, those are the people I'm going to go for. Those are the people I'm going to go spend time with. He had a larger number of women who were his disciples than anyone else at that time, that no other rabbi had women disciples, and he did, and they were some of the best ones, because he was looking for everyone that was being overlooked. And at the core of it is Jesus did not choose us. Okay, Jesus didn't choose to save you and send his son to die for you and for me because we were just so awesome. He just couldn't miss out. Okay, it wasn't just an incredible deal at Walmart that he couldn't say no to. Well, it's BOGO. i gotta got to do that. Can't say no to BOGO. No, he, he came after us not because we'd be just a great return on investment because we could get a lot accomplished for him. He came and he looked for the overlooked and he chose you and he chose me even though we have nothing to offer him at all just to show off how awesome he is and how much he loves us. That's what he does. And I love that Jesus, he acted on that love. He didn't just say, love you guys, love you a lot. Best of luck, be warm and be filled. Figure it out. Hope you can save yourself. Okay, that, that wouldn't actually be love. He, his love goes into action. He does what he believed, and he came to save us. And he especially, he chased after the kinds of people who might assume when they heard the gospel that that wasn't for them. That, wow, that sounds really great that Jesus did that, but I don't know if that, maybe that's for somebody else, somebody who's got it more together. I've really screwed up my life. I've really messed up here. Oh, that can't be for me. You know, I've, I've sinned too much. I've walked too far. I don't really know enough that those are the people that Jesus went after. And it's not because they're the only people he cares about, but it's because he wants every single person to know that he loves them and he values them and he wants them to come to his son and believe the gospel. And so this morning, we, we've, we've covered kind of a lot of ground in here. There's so much in this chapter. I encourage you to go back and continue to read it and to meditate on it. But we, we've seen, one, that, that prejudice is anti-Christian, that we, in the way that we follow Jesus, we cannot discriminate and show favoritism towards one people over another. We see, number two, that we do what we believe, that every single day the way that we live reveals what we actually believe, no matter what we think we say. And number three, that Jesus, he came for the overlooked. He came for those who were on the margins. He came for the people who would assume that he came for somebody else. He's not here to see me. And so this week, I just want to challenge all of us to, to try and live out our faith and to examine our faith and who, and who we love this week. And we'd be honest with ourselves and ask, man, who are the people that I struggle to love? Who are the people that when they knock on my door and I see their, their name on my phone or when I just bump into somebody who looks like that, that we struggle to, to love? And we would ask Jesus to continue to change us and to push us. I also encourage us to just rest this week and, and remember that Jesus came for us. That he came for the people who didn't think he came for them. That he came for all of us because he loves us, because he values us, and because he wants us to be his children, even though we have nothing to offer him. Let's close in prayer. Lord, I just thank you for sending your son. I, I thank you that you 
loved us enough to not just say that you loved us, but you loved us enough to actually come chase us and come rescue us and come seek after us. Lord, I ask that you would continue to do a work in our lives, Lord, that you would continue to change us and that you would help us to live out our faith. Lord, would it not just be words, but would our faith in you be manifest in actions? Would we live like people who love you? We can only do that with your help. Pray these things in your holy and precious name. Amen.